Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study before you, and we pray that you will join us today, enlighten our minds, and fill our hearts with your presence and love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly origins, and the title this week is Marriage, a Gift from Eden. And um, the the memory verse uh, was uh, Genesis 2.18, which we're all very familiar with, which says, The Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. Why do you think it was not good that man should be alone? He wouldn't bathe, he wouldn't shower, what? (laughs) What did you say? You can't have love alone. You can't have love alone. Um, I like, I love that. I love where she's going with that. Um, There's certain depths of love, right? Because we would probably say there was a love with with God and Adam, but it, it, it was a level there it couldn't go beyond, right? But what, what, what do you think ha- creating Eve did for his capacity for love that was not there with God himself? Well, it grew in a different direction to be able to care for another person. Okay. There you go. Did God need Adam to, to serve him? No. Now, now, we can do service for God. There's no question. God lets us do But it's not that same, is it? What you said, care for. Serve, sacrifice for. Also, was there something about the relationship and its love and the two becoming one that results in procreation? Is that something that is an expression of love? And does that result in an additional layer of capacity to love when you have children? Does that take your love in a new direction? And was that part of the experience as well? Hey, it's not good for him to be alone because, because he's made in our image. And he really won't be able to experience the depths of love as a single isolated human being. He needs a partner that's equal to him. And then together, they'll be able to love each other. And out of that love will come beings that they'll even love even more. That's beautiful, isn't it? Well, I think the lesson actually says this right. Um, in Sunday's lesson, it says, uh, God had declared all aspects of creation good upon the to- up until the time he created Adam. At that point, Adam was the only human, although he was made in the image of God, in his aloneness, he could not reflect the full image of God. And who, who exists in relationship with other parts of the Godhead? The Godhead, of course, is composed of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thus, Adam needed someone like himself with whom he could form a relationship of mutual love and cooperation, reflecting the loving relationship exemplified within the Godhead. I think they said that very well. And then in the bottom of Tuesday's lesson, I'm just going to jump over because I think they say it well over there too. It said, it is the husband's privilege to give himself to his wife in loving service as Christ gave himself to the church. Boy, I think that's well said. Do you hear that enough in the church? When they they describe marriage, that that the privilege of the husband is to give himself in loving service to his wife. So this is God's ideal for marriage. What happened? As you look around the world, look around the church. Do you see marriages consistently functioning in this gracious, other-centered, altruistic service of love? Or do you see that there's often problems? Yes. What happened? As has been said before, the amount of divorce in our Christendom is equal to those who are non-Christian. Yeah, there's no difference in divorce rates at all. That's, that is a sign of something difficult. Hmm. And I think maybe we should reflect why. Why is that the case? Isn't there no difference in domestic violence rates either? There's no difference in domestic violence rates, except if you're a man. Look at the, the, the stats that were done by Renee. Renee's here today. Uh, no, if you're a woman, you're in the church, or you're out of the church, the likelihood of getting abused is equal. No safe place to hide. If you're a man, though, you, I think it's like two or three times more likely you'll get abused if you're a member of the church. Are the divorce rates exceeding the national average? In the church? In Adventism. Oh, I don't know about Adventism. I don't have that stat. I don't know. I don't know. Well, according to the CDC, and I went to the CDC website, and the last stats they have on marriage were actually a little dated now, but this the most recent they put up was 2002. And I suspect this is probably not moving in the best direction, but we can't know until they put up the latest data. But the latest data from 2002, looking at uh, 
people aged 15 to 44. Looking at that room, I guess they looked at that because that's showing the, the group that, uh, you know, where, where, you know, death and stuff is not really coming in. And they're really looking at cohabitation and divorce. 28% of men and women aged 15 to 44, 28% cohabitated before marriage. A little more than one in four. 23% of women and 18% of men married without ever cohabitating. 20% of women, 18%. 15% of men and 15% of women only cohabitated and never married. Approximately two-thirds of first marriages, two-thirds of first marriages lasted 10 years or more. Two out of three. In contrast to marriage, only about a quarter of men's and one-third of women's first cohabitation lasted three years or more. With either, and, and of course, that, that cohabitation could, could end in two, one of two ways. The relationship broke up or they got married. Then they're not cohabitating anymore and now they're married. Um, more than uh, half of the, of the first cohabitations were expected to transition to marriage within three years. Um, the first cohabitation of men and women with no high school diploma or GED, without a high school diploma or GED, were the most likely to remain intact for three years or more. Whereas the first cohabitations of men and women with bachelor's degrees were... were uh, or higher, were more likely to transition to marriage within the first three years. 8% of currently married women's... Now, this is kind of a funny sentence. 8% of currently married women's husbands okay, were not employed. So if you're a woman and married, 8% of them had a husband and were not employed. Um, while 15% of currently cohabitating women's male partners were not employed. 15, one five. So about basically double, double. So if you want a husband, want the male partner to work, don't cohabitate. Twice as likely you'll be supporting him if you cohabitate. Okay. Uh, Married persons live longer, have higher rates of health insurance coverage, uh, lower prevalence of cardiovascular disease than unmarried persons. Research also indicates that marriage is positively associated with health and well-being of the children. Children born to unmarried mothers are at greater risk than children born to married mothers for poverty, teen childbearing, poor school achievement, and marital disruption in adulthood. Yes? Did you find statistics for people who are both virgins when they've gotten married? Because I read those. It's been a little while. Not on the CDC website. It's about 80% success. Yeah, I, haven't, I haven't seen that data. But I, I haven't seen that for about five years, I think. But yeah. it's, it's much higher when you have two virgins that get married. Their success rate is much higher. Yeah, I, that would be interesting to see. I haven't seen that. I, I would believe that there's some legitimacy to that, too, because of the way the neurobiology works and how bonding takes place. From 1987 to 2002, the percentage of women between 35 and 39 who had ever cohabitated doubled from 30% to 61%. So that was in like a 15-year period, a doubling of that. Yet studies have emerged that suggest that cohabit- cohabitators do not show the same level of health benefits as married persons, but may show greater health benefits than divorced, separated, or widowed. They also, cohabitators, report a lower level of relationship quality and lower household incomes than married couples. Now, why do you think that cohabitation, what what are some hypotheses? I don't have a study that proves it, but hypotheses as to why cohabitation doesn't confer the same benefits, health benefits, as marriage. There's a hand over here. I have a person working for me that is cohabitating with a man, and they can't afford to get married. I mean, they... They want to get married, but you know she wants to have a wedding, and weddings are fairly expensive, and they both make less than fifteen dollars an hour. So one possibility is because they're poor, they get less health care coverage, eat cheaper foods, which are not as healthy for you. So it's, that's a hypothesis because they're poor. And I've got some anecdotal evidence. Yes. It's typical for couples who are the children are her children, they're her responsibility, she pays for them, he pays for whatever he wants to pay for. That's what I've observed in a number of cases. Did y'all hear that? She said that uh, it's, it's often the case that cohabitators uh, see their own incomes as their own rather than a mutual pool of a joint marital income. And so they have their own bank accounts, and if there are children involved, then, then whoever is the biologic parent, they're their children, not the other person's children. And, and so they don't share some of those responsibilities. And, and basically, there's not a u- unity, or they're more like quasi-roommates with benefits, right? Okay. Um, rather than an actual married couple. I think you're going down the long line I'm thinking of. For me, one of the things that popped into my mind as a hypothesis is that cohabitation doesn't have the same commitment level 
Therefore, it doesn't provide the same security. Therefore, it incites more anxieties and fears of abandonment. And anxieties cause an inflammatory cascade, worsening health and so forth. There's more suspiciousness and some of these things without that committed... Because there's, there's a greater hurdle to exit a marriage relationship. There's a higher level of commitment and there's a greater hurdle to get out than there is just living together. There's less of a commitment, easier to walk away. And so for both of those reasons, I think that that's also another layer amongst the things that you guys have said as well. Yes, in the back. Does anybody have a statistic? I've heard of cohabitating for several years together. They get married, within a year or two they're divorced. Is there any statistics to to back that up of why they would get divorced? I don't know the answer to that question. The CDC did say that studies have found that persons who cohabitate prior to marriage are more likely to have their marriages dissolved than those who did not cohabitate prior to marriage. So if you live together before you marry, it's, it's, it's a nail in the coffin of that marriage. It's undermining the, the long-term solidity of the marriage. Studies comparing child academic outcomes and behaviors in cohabitating and married parents' households conclude that children living in families where mothers, mother is cohabitating do not fare as well as where mother is married. So a lot of benefits to, to marriage, according to the CDC. Don't go into all the nuance and to why. Just giving you some stats and some statistics. In the first paragraph of uh, Sabbath lesson, it says... Think of the blessing of happy marriage and of loving home. How unfortunate are those who, who um, let's see, how fortunate, yeah, I was, I was looking at the word un- underneath it, unfortunately, my, 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 my eyes glanced below. It says, how fortunate are those who have such an experience? Unfortunately, for too many people, marriage has been an experience of mostly pain and anger rather than joy and peace. This is not how it was intended or how it should be. The sad state of so many marriages is a powerful expression of the degradation that sin has brought to the human race. So what are your thoughts on that? Why do you think so many marriages are not healthy marriages? They're, they're toxic or unhealthy or unpleasant or even destructive. Why would you say? The people that entering into marriage are toxic and healthy. Amen. That's a well said. You know, I, I do presentations all over, and one of the little... Truisms I often say is that healthy relationships require healthy people. And if you're not a healthy person yourself, it doesn't matter who you get in a relationship with, you won't have a healthy relationship. Conversely, if you're a healthy person, but you get into a relationship with an unhealthy person, that relationship will not be healthy no matter what you do to try to make it healthy. Example, the best example is Jesus and and Lucifer. Once Lucifer became unhealthy... No matter what God wanted to do, no matter how perfect he was, no matter the attempts that he made, and, were de- and, and they're described that he went to nth degree to try to, bring, to save that relationship, there was still the great divorce. That relationship fractured and could not be reconciled. And so, yes, healthy relationships require healthy people. So the, what I tell my patients that come see me is the first step always is step back and do self-inventory and say, am I, am I doing all in my power to be the healthiest person I can be? I can tell you in relationships that I do counseling, I do a lot of relationship counseling, it is the norm that the people that come to me are all about trying to change the other and have very, very little willingness at all to look at themselves and try to make any positive changes in themselves. And when you try to focus there, it is a battle. It's a constant deflection, denial, projection, externalization, um, victimization, um, all these different things where they really want to, 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 to be justified in their in their position of anger towards the partner. Kim, I think you yes. could describe what a sinner is like. <laughs> what a sinner is like, sure. A sinner is a person who is, does not, cannot see the need of the grace of Christ. Yeah, and a sinner is somebody who lacks empathy. I mean, the more sinful you get, the more hardened your heart, the less capacity you have to empathize or put yourself in empathy to feel and have a heart for other people, to be selfless. Now there's a, Statement here in the next section, it says, God celebrated the first marriage. Thus, the institution has been uh, has for its originator the creator of the universe. Marriage is honorable. It was one of the first gifts of God to man, and it is one of the f- two institutions that after the fall, Adam brought with him beyond the gates of paradise. When the divine principles are recognized and obeyed in this relationship, marriage is a blessing. It guards the purity and happiness of the race. It provides for man's social needs. It elevates the physical and intellectual and the moral nature. This is out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 46. Question. It is suggested that when the divine principles are followed, Marriage is a blessing. What does that mean? 
the divine principles are followed, marriage is a blessing. Do you notice marriage? Did, it didn't say here, marriage is a blessing. Didn't say that. I can tell you marriage can be the, one of the greatest blessings you can experience. It can also be one of the greatest cursings. It really can be one of the most horrible things you can be in if the divine principles aren't being followed. What are the divine principles? Love and freedom. Love and freedom. These are the divine principles. Yeah. And how would you describe love? A warm, gooey feeling, an arousal, attraction, passion. Putting the other person first. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is that Christ gave his life, and we ought to give our lives for each other. That selfless desire to promote the welfare, and that's the key, the welfare, the health and happiness, not the desires of the other person. Oftentimes, the loving action is to disappoint the other person. Not to give them what will make them feel good in the moment. Isn't that true? I love you too much to go along with that. I want to see your eternal well-being, not your momentary pleasure. I have, uh, I have patients that come see me whose husbands are involved in porn, for instance. And if they love their husbands, do they go out and buy and purchase that stuff for him? No, they don't participate. They love you too much to go along with that. It's destructive to you. I can't do that. So marriage was uh, not only is healthy when it operates on these principles, was marriage designed to reveal these principles? Think about the purpose of the human being. We are called a temple for... Yeah, a temple. It, it, could, that, could that be a showcase? We were designed to be a showcase to the universe to teach a, a theater, a spectacle to men, Paul talks about that, how we are. And the marriage relationship, the unity of two, coming together, bringing forth children in a world of perfection before sin as God instructed them to do, which they didn't do, but he instructed them to do, what would have been revealed? We are, we are a showcase to express not just experience and practice, but to reveal in action what God's methodologies, his principles, his way of doing business you might, some, some might say his government looks like. What would it have looked like, do you think? Can anybody imagine what earth would have looked like had Adam and Eve stayed loyal and had children in a world with no sin? Let your imagination just contemplate for that for a minute. No sin. So why are they bringing kids into the world? To enslave? To dominate? To control? To demand worship from? To abuse? To punish? Or to be, give of themselves constantly for their welfare? To promote their health and happiness? What a lesson book for the universe. Why did God create us? Because he needs our worship. No, because he loves to give and fill our lives with joy and happiness. Yes. Also the reverse. What would this world be like if there were no marriage, period? Well, we're moving there. We're heading that direction. There are some societies, there's some, some societies now where it's becoming less and less. There may be some cities where it's even becoming less and less. Yes. It's really obvious, but it, it's something that many of us get caught up in when you talk about these principles, that they're actually what's in the heart and not the behaviors, because we often get caught up in these behaviors that appear to look like love. Yes. But that's not it. Well said. So, in, in action then, following up what you're saying, looks like love but isn't love. Is there a difference between giving in love and giving in fear of rejection. In other words, giving in order to give or giving in order to get. I'm giving in order to get your approval. I'm in it, giving in order to get your praise. I'm giving in order to get your validation, to get your acceptance, to get your physical presence, whatever. I'm giving in order to, give, to get or do I give in order just to give? Is there a difference? Is there a difference being in a relationship where you live to really bless and uplift the other or living in a relationship where it's fear of rejection, fear of criticism, fear of, uh, of, slamming, of the door slamming, of the, of the negative word, of the hostile voice, of, of if you step the wrong way, there's going to be an argument. Is there a difference in those two? Doing the same behavior. You can do one behavior, wash the car because you just want to do something to to make your spouse happy. Wash the car because if you don't, you're going to get nagged and griped at. Or wash the car because you want to get praised. 
Not because you want them to have a happy car or a clean car, but have a happy day. You want, you want, you want them to praise you. Is there a difference? Yeah, there is. Same behavior, right? Heart motive makes a big difference. Have you ever heard pastors tell husbands they should submit to the insights and wisdom of their wife? Never. Why, why not? Because <laughs> <laughs> pastors are usually male. Um, does the church inadvertently put husbandly authority over wisdom, healthy decision-making, and right choices? Inadvertently. Or maybe purposely, huh? Okay, alrighty. Um, <clears throat> in view of God's government, if we view God's government like human governments operate, you know, the imposer of law and imposer of punishments, that type of thing, does that have an impact on how we view marriage and how we relate in marriage? Yeah, it does. And if you uh, haven't seen our domestic violence uh, presentation, there are free CDs out there, the little ones in the single pack. Take one with you. Because we go through this whole contrast between the law that life was built to operate upon and how God designed relationships to work. And then when we internalize and accept an imposed Roman law construct, God is the great emperor of the universe and imposes laws upon his subjects. And then what happens is the consequence in relationships all the way down to our families, when, when, whether we operate on one of those two views. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. When are we living? <laughs> I didn't hear an answer. When are we living? Are we living in last days? Yes. Yeah, okay. Terrible times. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers themselves, but having a form of godliness, but denying the power. Notice, this is not talking about the evolutionists and the agnostics. This is talking about the churchgoers here. And after you hear all of this, you know what the next verse says? Get your mind around this. Those who look like this have this form of godliness, but have all this selfishness in their heart. These are the kind who worm their way into the homes and gain control over weak-willed women. These are domestic violence people. These are people who abuse people in their own home. It's very, very sad. Monday's lesson. And I'm going to suggest to you that's a direct consequence from accepting a distorted view of God's law and the way he runs his universe. A lot more detail in our domestic violence uh, like, uh, DVD out there. Yes? Why, why have we become so immune to those traits around us? It's almost like we ignore them or we get so used to them, we just think it's part of life now. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a piece of that. There is a certain lack of sensitivity we get when we get something exposed to something over and over again. When you watch CSI and, and over and over again, and you see all this gore while you're eating, you're still able to eat, you see you get des- desensitized to it. Well, behold, and you become changed. Yeah. Monday's lesson, a third paragraph, states, um, let's see if I'm in the right paragraph. Yeah, but God had a reason for forming Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. If the two had been created completely separately, it could indicate that by nature they were completely independent individuals. But the sharing of the flesh in both persons indicates that the two were to be united uh, and were intended to be one flesh. What does this idea of one flesh mean to you? What is this idea of? We've heard it all the time. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard it. You've heard it your whole. I mean, the upbringing, the whole day. You heard. What does it mean? What are the implications? Does the fact that Eve was taken from Adam's rib have any implications beyond marriage, even into the plan of salvation? Think of the implications. How many, how many intelligent species did God create on planet Earth? When? In Adam. Notice, every other human life is an extension of Adam's. Eve is an extension of Adam. All the children are an extension of Adam. So if you think about the plan of salvation then, if God wants to save this intelligent species, now he's free to create new species anytime he wants. Even species that look just like us. But they won't be part of Adam. Unless what? Christ becomes part of Adam. This is why he became incarnate. 
This is why he took our iniquities upon himself. He, he took up our infirmities, our sickness, our fallen state. He took it to fix, to heal, to restore. That's why we now have a second Adam. And we can be grafted in. How are we grafted in, primarily? Where is, the, where is it when we accept Christ we're grafted in? In a new biology instantly? Or new, I said earlier, heart and mind? Something changes within. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And, and how is it we're able to access that? My view is because Christ became human and achieved those victories with the exercise of his human brain. He didn't achieve those victories with an angel brain. He didn't achieve those victories with a brain from some creation on another planet that has never fallen. He didn't achieve those victories with his divine brain. Because divinity cannot be tempted, it says in James. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He exercised a human brain that got tired and needed to sleep. Get your mind around the significance of that. That's huge. And the exercise of that human brain developed a perfect human character. And it says in Hebrews 5.8 that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. Notice the for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. Once he finished his mission, once he made that perfect humanity. He's made perfect through obedience. Yes, through intelligently choosing with his human brain to always live in harmony with God's methods, principles, and law. He, he was made perfect through suffering. And it was that it was that struggle of the two antagonistic principles that produced the suffering. Exactly right. The conscious eradication of selfishness from the human. And you see that in Gethsemane, don't you? Yeah, the suffering. I mean, it's, it's tough. What caused the suffering in Gethsemane? Had he been beaten yet? No. Hand hadn't been laid. But did he suffer? From, and what was, the, what was the emotional pull? What direction were the terrible, agonizing emotions pulling him? Toward, toward a, what action? Selfishness. Notice that is the inherent biological twist. It's the law of sin and death. That survival of the fittest instinct. Watch out for number one. Protect self at all costs. That's the law of sin and death. And we are so wired with it. It's so strong in us that by ourselves we can't stop it. Christ came and, and defeated that in us. And now he says, well, it's, good. it's good for you that I go. If I go, the Holy Spirit will come, the Comforter. He will take all that's mine and make it known to you. Put it in you. It's no longer, write my law in your hearts and minds. No longer have to live, but Christ lives in me. Thus the Bible teaches that Christ is the second Adam. When we surrender to him, the Holy Spirit comes and we can be transformed in heart, in mind now. We don't get new biology now. We get new biology when the mortal puts on immortality and the corruption puts on incorruption. So, back to this idea of what does it mean for the two to become one? And does this text have any bearing is there any relation between the two shall become one and this prayer of Jesus in John 17? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's a relationship between God's design in Eden before sin, the two shall be one, and what Jesus is praying for, that we all become one. Is there a relationship? If so, somebody tell it to me. Or are these two separate and distinct, unrelated things he's talking about here? At one At one minute, also known as atonement, at one minute. But do, can, can, you, can you see the relationship? Or do we think of the two shall be one as sex? And that's it. Two is one, they're sex. That's it. And then when I read this, I and you, you and me, we're like, oh, that's gross. Let's not think about that. Do we think physical or we think it beyond the physical? It's from a woman's standpoint anyway, it's like connected intimacy. You know, women are a lot about connectedness, less about hierarchy, more about connectedness. And so from a woman's standpoint, that means connected and intimate. So let's, let's push it to another. We've got two texts in our, our, your mind right now. You're holding the two shall become one. You're holding in your mind the prayer of Jesus that we all become one. Here's one more. Mark chapter 12, 
the Sadducees came to Jesus and asked the question about a woman who married a man and, and then he died and then the six brothers came behind and all married. And then they asked the question, when, when, when she dies and goes to heaven, whose wife will she be uh, of the seven brothers? And Jesus replied, this is the message version. I'm reading out the message. This is out of um, Mark 12, 24 and 25. Jesus said, you're way off base and here's why. One, you don't know your Bibles. Two, you don't know how God works. After the dead are raised up, we're past the marriage business. As it is with the angels, now all our ecstasies and intimacies will be with God. The question is, do you see where he's taking that? Do you think he takes it far enough? That's the end of it, yeah. Do some versions say with God all things are possible? Not there. I don't think it's there. Pull out another translation. Mark 12, 24, and 25. Mark 12, 24, and 25. Anybody got it? Read it. I have King James here. It says, And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither uh, marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. That's the classic. They neither marry nor given in marriage, but are the angels in heaven. So he's taken the as the angels in heaven and in adding in a suggestion that their intimacies and ecstasies come from their relationship with God. That's how the angels are in heaven. Added. Of course that's added. It's implied in the text, but it's added uh, to, you know, to expand. Do you think that the passage in John where Jesus prayed for his followers to be one has any bearing on this idea of how the angels are in heaven? Yes. When I think about one flesh, when I think about my own body, first of all, my, my right arm is never going to do harm to my left arm, presumably. Second, it's going to try to not only not do harm, but it's going to try and do right for my other arm. And third, having two arms enables me to do a whole lot more than having one arm. So if two become one flesh, the husband and the wife should never do harm to each other, and they should look out for each other, and together, or even if you extend it to living in community, we can accomplish so much more. Well, I like where you're going with that. I like very much where you're going with that, especially when, when what is the temple, temple in heaven described as being constructed out of? Lively stones. Living stones, people. That's what, that's what it's going to be built out of. So think about taking what he's saying now, that this, this community, this construction, this dwelling place for God, it's all of us are involved in looking out for the health and welfare of the other. I don't think the message went far enough that our intimacies are for I think that when we get to heaven, my view right now is that we will have this love, that love and the intimacy that you currently have for your spouse, you will have that level of love and beyond for every intelligent being remaining in God's universe, and you will be loved like that by every being in God's universe. It will be so beyond our capacity right now. We're so narrow in our understanding and our experience. It's, it's beyond, it's, in, it's, it's infinity. That's what I believe. There'll be that intimacy and perfect love of unity that, that we will be one, truly. And it'll be fantastic and rewarding. So I think he's, he's going down the right track about our ecstasies and intimacies with God, but I think it's more than that. It would be the entire community uh, of Zion, of the heavenly Jerusalem. Yes. Tim, I think this description of intimacy with God and, and oneness with God is so much better than the, the uh, development of a theology about Jesus that, for instance, came through Catholicism, as in the Immaculate Conception. Yes. In other words... He's not part of this creation. Yeah. So what that does, in my opinion, and I'd really rather hear what you have to say about it, but it it leaves us with the idea that, okay, God made sure that he had something perfect here by his own divine will. Now, we can never achieve that except by assent. What you're saying is that this is something that Jesus developed. Yes. Yes. While he was here, living like we do. 
Yes, and his power in you will transform you. It's real. This is the big difference between what we're teaching and what what tradition in Christianity is. Tradition in Christianity teaches that when you come to Christ, you get something done in a record book somewhere in in the cosmos up in heaven that 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 stamps pardon or writes forgiveness or erases records or something's happening there. The, the gospel message is actually that you open your heart, you get the law written on the heart and mind. Something transformational happens, real in the being that you live with new motives, new thoughts, new desires, new capacities that are, that are, that are transformational in nature because the Lord lives in you. Yes. And, and probably, I mean, it would be interesting to know, I, I, probably initially in heaven, before the war in heaven, that was how it was. That unity, that intimacy and with all the angels and then Lucifer in breaking away and introduced in coming up with his selfish motives, he, he broke that. And, and how does and how does that? We we talked about this repeatedly. What's that domino falling dominoes of destruction? What's the first thing that breaks it? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. If you believe your spouse is cheating, but they're not, somebody's lying to you, but you believe they are. Think about how that circle of love and trust gets broken. Satan is the father of lies. He told those lies in heaven, and the angels that believe the lies, their trust in God was broken. And that's exactly right. It's very, very powerful. Tuesday's lesson, fourth paragraph, says, Jesus also emphasized the lasting nature of marriage. Marriage is not a casual relationship to be entered in or dismissed at will. It is a lifetime commitment. Those who are not prepared to commit themselves for life should postpone such a step until they're ready. <coughs> and let's, let's jump over and read Malachi. Because we're talking about divorce now. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. This is out of the NIV. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings and accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And, And why one? Because, excuse me, because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's, um, I hate a man's, let's see, uh, violence against his wife, as well as, uh, as uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a funny translation here, uh, violence against his wife. So guard your spirit and do not break faith. Some versions say I hate a man's covering his wife or... I hate a man's covering his wife with violence, as well as with his garment. Yeah. I hate a man's covering his wife with violence. Some say covering himself with violence, as well as his garment. So do not, so guard yourself in your spirit and not break faith. So what position is a healthy position for Christians to take on the subject of divorce? <coughs> healthy position. Does the way, before you answer the question, step back and ask, okay, I have two doorways to enter through. I have the doorway of God's natural law of love upon which he built the universe to run, to answer this question. I have the doorway of imperial Roman legal law system imposed upon with rules to answer this question. Now, decide which one you want to enter and then answer the question. Because you get two different answers. Completely different answers. I can tell you, which, which version do you think the church has historically answered through? Imposed. The imposed law. See, it's a legal obligation. See, if we see God's law is imposed, uh, then divorce, how do we consider divorce? Well, it's a legal process, and unless someone breaks a, sp- because there's a, if it's a, you know, it's a specific proscribed exception clause. It's for life, except. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, it's, it's built into a contract. Okay, and and if there's adultery, then you've broken the contract, and I can you know uh, get out. Legal binding contract is now null and void. But if one breaks the uh, the marriage without that exception clause being uh, exercised or broken first, uh, then one themselves is viewed as sinning or committing adultery. This is how it's historically looked at, is it not? What happens if you see the law as the law of love, the way God built the universe to run? Then how do you see divorce? Any, any comments? I saw a hand over here somewhere. Yeah. Yes. <coughs> there is an exception to the exception clause, too, which doesn't get talked about. But I'll, I'll, I'm not sure which door I'll enter in, but I'll, I'll just say uh, the 
uh, there's no such thing as an innocent party. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I guess it depends on which divorce you're talking. If you talk about the great divorce that C.S. Lewis wrote about, you know the great divorce? Everybody in the room of the book? Yeah. yeah, Satan and God. There was a great divorce. God was an innocent party. And there was a divorce. Yes. And if, and if you say there are no innocent parties, you're implying that a man who goes out and commits adultery does it because of his wife. Well, and, and I, but, but I, think, I think the point he's trying to make is simply that there, there are no um, parties that don't make mistakes in marriage. But see, that, but what you're making, the point is, mistakes and, um, and betrayal are not the same thing. One can be innocent of betrayal in a marriage having still made mistakes. Is that not true? Yes. If you're one flesh and you, and you cut off your left arm, it's going to hurt. If you have to cut off that left arm, even because it's gangrenous and you have to do it to save your body and it's the right thing to do and you have the legal right to do it, it's still going to hurt. You see, he's going through the law of love lens now. He really beautifully said, why does God... Hate divorce, does the Bible teach you hates it? We just read it, yes. Well, divorce is like an amputation. It's exactly what it's like. Do doctors hate amputations? Or do doctors say, oh, I love, I'm going to go and amputate today. I love to amputate. Do we hate them? Don't we hate them? Yeah. I, I've actually, when I was in med school, I had to, I had to amputate a guy's diabetic gangrene foot. I was the, the med student that actually took it off. Um, it's no fun. It's gross. Why do, get, why do doctors do amputations? Is there something that doctors hate worse than amputations. The loss of their patience, you see? And so we amputate when the limb is gangrenous. There's no possibility to save it. And if we don't, we'll lose the whole patient, you see? So, what does God... What does God hate worse than divorce? What does he hate worse than divorce? The loss of his children. That's exactly right. And are there some marriages that are so dysfunctional, so destructive, so out of harmony with God's design that if you stay, it, it, it destroys your fitness for God? Yes. There are. Absolutely. Pardon? You read before Mrs. White comment about the toxic marriage that she told it. Yes, brother, if you ever want to look it up on the, on the CD, it's a uh, letter to Brother Craig. And um, she tells this man that his, his marriage was a trap of Satan that his fitness for heaven was being undermined, his manhood is being destroyed, and he had no business keeping such a childlike wife at his side. He should take her home to the mother who made her the way she is. <laughs> those, are, those are quotes, and she said it in the letter like three times. <clears throat> well, Tim, it bears, it bears reiteration that what God really hates is broken faith. He said, when I come again, will I find faith on the earth. Yes, did you hear what he's saying? He said he hates broken faith. In other words, broken trust. That's what we're getting at, broken trust. Let me read out of Malachi, uh, let me read out of the message, the passage I already read out of Malachi of the NIV. This is the message version. You fill the place of worship with your whining and sniveling because you don't get what you want from God. Do you know why? It's simple. Because God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride, and now you've broken, you've broken those vows, broken the, uh, the faith bond, with your vowed companion, your covenant wife. God, not you, made marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what, and what does he want from marriage? Children of God. That's what. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. God of the angel armies says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down. Don't cheat. Isn't that good? Yeah. So if we're looking at marriage through the lens, or divorce through the lens of, of a, a natural law, God would have us reconcile the, uh, the marriage where marital infidelity existed. If it's... If spouse cheated on another, if it's possible, if there was forgiveness and repentance, then that meant that marriage should be reconciled. And what a... What a message to the universe. That's exactly right. If it's possible. That's right. Yes. If it, if the transformation of both hearts. That's exactly right. Listen to, bringing all these pieces in, let's listen to this now. Matthew 5, 31, 32. 
It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Who was speaking there? Jesus. When he was single, he really didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Or or do do we take what he says seriously? What does it mean? Let me read you my paraphrase of that. And this has got some additions. I'll just tell you now. <laughs> it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must do it legally, giving her a divorce certificate to protect her rights. I'm here to tell you a deeper reality. Divorce happens when love breaks down and selfishness wins. No one wants to lose a limb, but we sever gangrenous limbs to save the person. To sever a healthy limb is damaging and wrong. Likewise, anyone who divorces their spouse except for the gangrenous situation of marital betrayal inflicts unfaithfulness upon their spouse and whomever the divorced spouse should later marry. And I've got a footnote. Why would that inflict unfaithfulness? Here's the footnote. Adultery is a heart issue. As Jesus said in the previous verses, um, divorcing a spouse whose heart is not unfaithful because of selfishness in one's own heart forces the divorced spouse into a situation in which their heart still longs for the first spouse. So if they marry, their heart heart longs for the one they have lost. Thus, the new marriage is built on divided loyalties and longings in an adulterous situation. Do you see it? This is the problem. Particularly in Christ's day, if a, the, the, the husbands gave their wives a writ of divorcement, They were street people or prostitutes unless they could find someone to marry them. And if she was not unfaithful and her heart was still for him, and her only survival mechanism was to marry someone else, now her heart, she may be there to survive, but her heart's longing for the first guy still. This was a terrible situation. This is what he's saying. And this is looking through which lens? The law of love lens. This is not a legal lens. Not a legal lens. So now how do we, with all this together, how do you understand Christ's statement about God hating divorce, but giving divorce certificates, his explanation was, for the hardness of your hearts. How do you, how do you understand that? Why? He hates it, but he did it because, why? Their hearts were hard. Hardening of the arteries. Gangrenous. Unhealable. Destructive. We have to do some amputations to save some kids but he would have preferred you never to be that sick. So what is adultery? Merely physical sex or something else? I tell you, even after what I just said, there may be people listening who still struggle with this. What is adultery? A heart condition. It is a heart condition. Christ himself said, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you... Lust or look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. It's a heart issue. I tell you, I can't tell you how many people I have come to see me, victims of domestic violence. Husbands beat them. Uh, Not a single episode once 25 years ago where he flew off the handle and repented and was sorrowful and never did it again. We're not talking about, we're talking repetitively over, over again. Go to the pastor, and the pastor says, well, has he committed adultery? (laughs) Yes. With who? With me? How? You're married. He can't commit adultery with you. Every time he beats me, he betrays me. Every time he beats me, he betrays me. What does it say in James? I think it's James, isn't it? If you break the law in one point... See, this doesn't make sense to the legalist because you can break the tax law and not, and not break the law of murder. You can commit adultery and not murder if you're a legalist, if you're that imposed law construct. Those are two different codes in the law. But if you're under the design protocols of life and you realize all the commandments are an expression of love, you can't be unloving and still be loving. So if you break the law of love in one point, you're unloving. You're not loving. You're breaking the whole law because the whole law is summed up in love. That's right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. 
Tim, I like where the Message Bible said, where you read it, that it's the broken faith bond. The broken faith bond. That's exactly right. This is what, what adultery really is. And if you deal with them legalists, and, and, and sadly, it seems like too many of them end up in leadership positions in church organizations. They do. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm just trying to say, I just, it, it's true. And I've, I know many, many women who've gone to their pastor in a, in a, a terrible situation, and the pastor is very, well, the, adultery means physical sex with somebody. What do you say to that? So when you stood up before God and witnesses and committed yourself to love, honor, and cherish until death do you part, you only committed your genitals to one another? I mean, really, if that's the only way you can break that vow, that's the deep as your commitment goes. No. It is not primarily... It can be broken that way, for sure. But how about a woman who gets raped? She's drugged. She's drugged. She, somebody gives her ginger ale. She drinks it. She passes out. Why? She's passed out. She's raped. Her body, her genitals have been violated. Has she committed adultery? Notice, no adultery. It's not about the body. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. Who are we loyal to? Who, who is our loyalties to? Who do we betray? Do we betray our spouse? Do we, we cover them? We committed to them. It's not about now when we look at this. It's not about mistakes either, is it? Because we can make mistakes and still be loyal. We can even lose our, our perspective and, and, and have a moment where we argue and maybe even say some, some ugly words in an argument and we're still not un- disloyal. Because we come back later and go, you know what, I should have never spoken to you that way. You didn't deserve that. But if we never come back, if we maintain our superiority, our righteousness, you deserved it, you low-down, no-good-for-nothing person. And you better not ever question me again. Now, what are we doing? How about this? Is adultery a persistent and consistent failure to love your partner more than you love yourself? Think it through. A a persistent failure to love your partner more than self. If you look at, look at, if you want an example, the upper room, Peter, if everyone else runs, I won't, Lord. I'm with you. I love you. I'm going to be there. Was Peter lying? No, he passes the lie detector test. So Jesus trusted him, right? Didn't trust him. Nope, you're going to deny me before the cock crows. Drive me three times. Did, you, did Peter love Jesus? But the issue was, he still loved himself more. So when push came to shove, and his life was threatened that night, he threw Jesus under the bus to protect himself. Then he went out and wept bitterly. And Jesus said, when you're converted, feed my sheep. He went out and wept bitterly that night, died to self, and after that, loved Jesus more than himself. He still made some mistakes, as Paul had to confront Okay, still wasn't perfect, but he was no longer disloyal. He no longer threw Jesus under the bus to protect self. That's the big difference. And marriages can survive mistakes when we love the partner more than self. But marriages don't succeed where we love self more than the partner. Tim, yes. There's an important ad- addition to that. If you if you have not somehow developed health health within yourself you have become unhealthy yes created the conditions for creating adultery within yourself because you don't have faith in yourself anymore that's true no that, that's exactly right healthy relationships require healthy people good well said Wednesday's lesson One, first paragraph, one of the greatest examples of God's love for humanity can be found in human sexuality. It is truly a wonderful gift from God. Yet, as with all gifts that we have been given, it doesn't come un- unconditionally. That is, it's not something we can just do with as we please. God has set some rules. Indeed, he, he's very clear. Sexual activity is between a husband and wife, male and female, and only in the context of marriage. Anything outside of that is sin. Well, then. Enough said? Would you have said it this way? No. I, I had some trouble with some of the words and the language they, they used here. Particularly, um, I would, I would, uh, there's a sentence in there that starts, that is, 
It's not something that we can do just as we please. And I would have put, without consequence. Of course we can do with sex as we please. Absolutely we can. But not without consequence. That's the thing. that, And, and why? See, if you're under the imposed law construct, you can't do as you please because God said you can't and there's rules and you must obey them. If you're under the natural law construct, well, you can do whatever you like with the gifts God's given you, but you can't do it without consequence. There's always consequence to your choices. Huge difference. Huge difference. And if you think that I may be maybe mistaking which construct under, the very next uh, part of that sentence, God has set some rules. Really? God has set some rules? What do you think about that? Well, as a healthy parent, sure. Why does God set rules? If you want to use it that way. Why do parents set rules? Rules to brush your teeth. Why? To avoid, yes, but, but who, who, who are the rules for? Do you say that louder? The rules, exactly, the rules are for the children. This is what Paul says in Timothy, he says to Timothy, hey, the law was not given for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, for the murderer, the slave trader. Uh, it was given for those who, who uh, are, are disabused and, and, uh, and uh, are out of harmony with, with all the things that I teach. It's not for the righteous. The rules are not for the righteous. Any more than mom's rules to brush your teeth are not for you. Are they? Do you need that rule? How many need that rule to brush their teeth? I wouldn't, if mom didn't have that rule, I wouldn't brush my teeth. Does that make the rule wrong? Was the rule wrong? No, it's just not necessary. Why? Because that desire has been written on your heart. You practice that motive. It's part of your character now. It doesn't, you don't need an external directive because it's an internal motivation. And when God writes the law on the heart and mind and selfishness is eradicated and love is written in, we don't need the external guidances anymore. Not that they're wrong, they're just not necessary. If you love somebody, do you need a rule to say don't kill them? No. If you love them more than self, you'll never have to tell, tell somebody, hey, if you, hey, when you, you know, tell your six-year-old going to first grade, hey, when you're in your playground today, be sure not murder anybody. <laughs> you laugh at that. It's silly, isn't it? But if it's in the heart to do evil, then you need the rules. The rules are for the unconverted, for those who heart, whose hearts are still against their brother. So I would have written it. That is, it's not something we can do with as we please without consequence, God has created life to operate upon unchangeable protocols and only harmony with those protocols results in health and happiness. If you go with the construct of, of um, you know, imposed law, you're really in trouble because somebody, somebody who doesn't care about the imposed law is going to tell you, hey, if you're a red-blooded man and you see an attractive woman... You have a desire for her. I don't care what you say. No, no, I, I, you know something? I disagree with that. You do? Yes. If you're a bread-blooded man, you may find a woman attractive. Just like you can, you can look out and you can say, that's a beautiful sunset. That's a beautiful, you know, uh, falcon. That's a, a beautiful car. That's a beautiful woman. She's beautiful. But I don't want her. There's a big difference between recognizing beauty and having a desire for her. There's a big difference. Pardon? Appreciation or like... Yes. Recognition, awareness, appreciation, and having a desire. I got to tell you, um, now when I was single, when I was single, I would see a beautiful woman. I would, oh, there's something going on maybe over there. I could check that out. Okay? But once I married Christy, there was never a desire for anybody else. It's gone. That's an important distinction. But what I'm saying is... I'm still red-blooded. I'm saying there's, there's, a, there's a powerful projection by those people who are actually mocking you if you go by the imposed law. They're saying that the real natural imposed law for you as a man is to be lustful or to look at an even attractive woman. I don't care how, how righteous you think you're... you're uh, no, let me, let, me, let me interrupt you here. Let me interrupt you. Now, because I think you're going down the trail that Paul had to come to terms with. In Romans, Paul, it's all described there. Paul used to think this was righteousness. I have a desire in my heart to commit adultery. 
Very, very strong. But I use my willpower to say no to that desire so I don't act on it. Now I'm righteous. Until, if you read in Romans, until the commandment examined me and, and I died. And, he's, and the commandment he quotes is, thou shalt not covet. Because all the other commandments are you can do externally. But covet deals with external. And he knows now what real conversion is, you don't even have the desire to do it anymore. And so, yes, the legal model that you're going down would be, we have desires for evil, but we choose with our willpower not to do them. Because we're going to keep the rules. The law says don't do it, and we exercise our pharisaical strength and don't do it. <laughs> and we look down our nose at all those people who aren't as strong as us. Or the natural law is we have those desires, and, we're sick, and it makes us sick. And we go to Christ, and we say, Lord, send your spirit and change me. I don't want those desires anymore. And the heart changes, and we actually lose those desires, and it's not in us to do those things anymore. This is the transformation that, the, that, that God is trying to bring us to. And it really still comes out of those two windows that you look at the universe through. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have designed us in your image. And we are so sad that we have been infected with an antagonistic motivation, a selfish, fear-based motive that leads us all too often to misconstrue you, your kingdom, your methods, your principles, and practice things that kind of look like the way you do things on the outside, but the heart is so twisted on the inside that we only add pain upon pain and injury upon injury. Lord, we don't want to simply behave well. We want to be transformed and love well. Fill us with your love so that we might love well. We pray in your holy name. Amen.